Thanks so much to the band for leading us uh, so beautifully today. Wow. I wish you could have been there ahead of time to sit in the room with these friends as they got ready to come before us today, as they prepared their hearts to worship, as they shared prayer concerns around the circle and went before God in prayer for each other and for this congregation. I think you'd be encouraged by the Spirit of God that moves uh, in, in the hearts and the minds of people who are serving you in this place. And if you're new to the circle today, um, I'm really, really glad you came. Uh, Christ Church is a wonderful family, and we would love to get to know you. Charlie's invitation holds. I'm going to be at the gathering. I think that's a really creative name. Lunch with Dan. Very, we, we spare no expense coming up with these titles. I want to take us to the very close of Paul's famous letter to the church at Philippi long ago. We have been walking through this letter, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, over the course of these past months. And I want to take us into the very final verses, which are found in Philippians chapter 4. If you have a copy of the Bible uh, uh, available to you, and I hope if you don't have anywhere else, get one on your phone so you've got it with you always. I invite you to listen with me as I read this. And I want to just call out, if I can, as I read these verses, some really important themes that we're hearing being described here in these words and really uh, arcing back into the rest of the, of the reflections Paul has been giving uh, to the church. The first big theme I want to hit is this note of a deeply personal relationship that, that uh, the apostle feels for uh, the church in Philippi. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. What, what Paul is trying to describe here is that, that these people have been for Paul for a very long time. And as you know, if you've been on the study with us, Paul is now in jail in Rome. He's, he's suffering great privations. But the Philippian church have once again reached out to him to express their love and concern and their financial support and, and, and to just let him know that he is not forgotten. And Paul feels this deep sense of connection to these people across the miles. And so he writes this letter in part just to express uh, that care and that uh, sense of joy. And then he goes on in verse 11, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty, but I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, for I can do all this through God who gives me strength. And the big idea that we're hearing here is that Paul has got this profound confidence in God's provision. Uh, he has come to trust through the experiences of his life that as hard as it may get at some points, God is still there. God is still on the move. God is still going to provide what he needs. And, and he's reflecting that testimony in a wonderful way uh, to the Philippian church. Then he goes on in verse 14. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. 
Moreover, as you know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. You only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Paul is amazed at the character of the Philippian church. He cannot get over the generous heart of that church. And, and, he, and, he, and it, again, his, his big desire here is not so much to get more generosity from them, but to have God rejoicing, uh, crediting to the account of the Philippians in a sense, uh, a reflection of the goodness of the heart of the Christians in Philippi. Uh, and he's rejoicing in that amazing kind of character in a world where, very frankly, it was difficult to give, where Christians were often being tested sorely. The, the Philippians had responded to the needs and poured themselves out in remarkable ways. And then he goes on and says, uh, here towards the end, verse 19, and my God, actually he repeats it again, I have received full payment, have more than enough, I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. They'd sent Epaphroditus as an emissary from the Philippian church all the way out to Rome uh, to help uh, provide for Paul's needs while he's in prison. And he says, these gifts are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Once again, He's amazed at the character of the Philippians. And then he says, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amazing. He's sitting in a hole in the ground. He's in chains. He does not have many days left in his life but he is giving glory to God. He has so trusted and hoped in the future that God will provide. And, and today, today the Roman Forum is silent, as I've said before. We name our dogs Nero, who was the emperor of that day, and we name our kids Paul. And, and all across the world today, the gospel of Jesus Christ is touching lives, renewing hopes, guiding people through difficult times uh, as God worked through his spirit so faithfully in the life of Paul, the life of that Philippian church, and continues, I believe, to be at work in these ways through you and through me in our time also. I want to just tell you quickly what I'm out for today. In addition to this wonderful reminder of what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've been given so many marvelous pictures through this series of the qualities needed to live a worthy kind of life. I, I'm out for just a few objectives in our conversation this morning. One, I want to just say, if I've never said it eloquently enough, I want a deep personal relationship with you like Paul had with the Philippians. I don't want to just be the guy that shows up the face on the screen. Um, I, want to, I want to have a heart bond with Christ Church Butterfield. 
I want to be the, the pastor of your church. As, as Charlie is the campus pastor, I want you to feel like when, when you're, you're listening to me speak or we're running into each other, that's my pastor. That's my pastor. That's my first big hope. I want to tell you about some reasons for why I feel profound confidence like Paul did in the provision of God. And I'm going to give you some background to that. And, and I want to say again how privileged I feel to serve a church of such amazing character. And the church is not an institution. It's not a building. The church is a movement of God through people. And I just want to reiterate again today, as I will in just a moment, a bit more, why I feel like this church has such an amazing character. And then I want to remind us all that we are bearers together of an enthusiastic hope. That word enthusiasm, by the way, is, is a Greek, comes from the Greek word, which means entheos, meaning in God. In God. Enthusiasm is when, when we're in God and God is in us, we rise up with a different kind of hope uh, because we believe so much in his power to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or even imagine. So I want to reflect on that with you also today. And I want to do it, if I can, by getting a little more personal than maybe I've gotten with some of you and, and tell you how I came to be sitting in this seat, how I came to be feeling these things that I do feel about you, about the church of Jesus Christ, about the gospel message itself, and about the role God's given us in the world. So I'm going to take you all the way back, if I may. I'm going to take you back to a time when um, I was very young. I was born when I was very young, uh, very, very young. And I grew up in, in Chappaqua, New York, which is a suburb of Manhattan. You can see the little red star on the map that shows you where it's located in the state. Um, I had a marvelous family. Um, my mom is pictured there in the middle in the central picture. I'm the, the kid with the handsome glasses uh, and the slick back hair. And you're seeing several of my siblings. I'm the oldest, ultimately, of six kids. Uh, five boys and one very tough girl uh, in our family. Um, my dad is pictured in the lower left-hand side there, was a lawyer. and. Um, our family uh, was a church-going family. I have memories of going to Vacation Bible School. Uh, I can remember learning Scripture at Vacation Bible School, and, and they gave chocolate for memorizing Scripture. And I had a really good memory. I loved Vacation Bible School. And, um, and that was the beginning of my interest in the things of God. But, but that experience got derailed for me. Uh, as I entered into my uh, early uh, adolescent years, my dad was elected to the state legislature of New York. And uh, increasingly, our family pattern and rhythm got disrupted by that reality. He was away in the state capitol a good deal of the time. Uh, when he was home on the weekends, there was always things to be taken care of or constituent events to go to. And so church began to recede from our lives as a, as a regular rhythm and pattern. And this happened at just about the same time that I started asking the big questions. The big questions. Some of you have asked those questions. You know, uh, how can there only be one God in a world of so many religions? Uh, where is God? If, if God is so loving, why is there so much suffering? You know, how come I can't see God? 
Uh, why doesn't God do more miracles today? I mean, these are the kinds of questions that were kicking up for me as I was entering into my middle school years, and I now had no real context for getting answers to those questions. I didn't have a faith community where I could process those kinds of things. As time went on, I began to actually abandon the notion of God. I began to notice all the hypocrisy that I thought I saw in religious people. I was at the blissful age where you see hypocrisy in everybody but yourself as an adolescent. And, um, and I, I declared myself by ninth grade an atheist. In fact, I, when our family wanted to go to church, I said, I'm sleeping in. I'm not going to do that. I think that's hooey. I think that's for, I think that's for blue-haired old ladies and little kids. I think that's for people that aren't strong enough to stand on their own two feet and deal with life as it is. And, um, and this was my point of view, very fervently held uh, by the time I was, you know, a teenager. Uh, it's not that I didn't have faith. Um, I didn't have faith of a certain kind because I think, every, I think we are fundamentally religious creatures. I think God has made us in such a way that we're going to put our ultimate hope in something. We're going to look for security, significance, satisfaction in something, and we're going to throw our energies in that direction. Um, for some people, um, I suppose faith is they have faith in their good looks or their brains or whatever it, it might be. Uh, they think that's the pathway to getting what they want in life. For me, my faith was probably lodged in, in three significant godlets or you know, gods of sorts that were very popular in my community. Uh, one of those uh, godlets was, um, was just the whole uh, theme of money and affluence. And um, we lived in a nine-bedroom home on a 10-acre estate in, in Westchester County, New York. That was my, our house there in the kind of campus that was our, our home. Um, my grandparents lived in a bigger place that had belonged to uh, Tallulah Bankhead, one of the great actresses of an earlier era. You're all too young to remember Tallulah. Um, but uh, I grew up around this tremendous provision, material provision. I thought, this is where I'm going to find my security and my hope, and I'm going to pursue this kind of life as, as much as I can. Secondly, I put a lot of my uh, faith uh, in, in political power and in, in celebrity. And we had a lot of that going on around us in, in my family of origin. Uh, my dad, as I mentioned, was, was involved in politics. Uh, my uncle Peter uh, was United States Senator. He's the man in the lower left there who is uh, sitting next to Gerald Ford. Uh, he was the U.S. Senator from Colorado for many years and ambassador to Switzerland. Um, and our home was frequently filled with, with some of the big political personalities of the day. And even though it's hard to read the, the screen there, you have uh, the, the mayor of New York, um, I, I, uh, we had um, a national security advisor, an, an ambassador to Great Britain, a speechwriter for JFK. These were some of the people. My dad's the tall one in the middle, but we frequently had. I remember sitting down as a kid and, and asking for career advice from the lieutenant governor of the state when I was a little boy. I still remember. I'll tell you that story another day, tell you what he shared with me that day. My dad was also involved in, in interesting legal work. He represented sports figures. So he was Jimmy Connors' lawyer, the great tennis player. And uh, he was a lawyer for the uh, 
the Nets basketball team. And I remember meeting, you know, Julius Irving, Dr. J, and uh, we were surrounded by all of these people. And so my eyes were bugged out wide with, with sort of uh, respect and awe and at, at what power and celebrity could do. And, and I thought, boy, that's something I also want to pursue in life. I want to be as powerful as I can and as famous as I can get. Because uh, look at all the influence that, you, that comes with that. So alongside of, of, of affluence and wealth and power and celebrity, I would say the third big thing I worshiped was the perfect family. And, um, and I thought I had one. <laughs> uh, I had these uh, amazing grandparents. Uh, my grandfather's pictured in the, in the shot there. He's a, he was the executive vice president of a luxury liner corporation. Uh, my grandfather on my mom's side was a Wall Street tycoon. Uh, we just did these great vacations. Uh, they just introduced us to all these marvelous experiences. And um, that, I think, was one of our campaign photographs. And I just thought, ah, we're just the perfect kind of Kennedy-esque sort of family. Um, so this is where I put my faith. I don't know where you put your faith. I don't know what you're chasing. I don't know what it is that you regard as your ultimate source of security, significance, or satisfaction. But these were some of the things that I worshipped. And then the storms came. Um, the storm came hard in my life. Uh, Jesus, as you may recall, um, said that there was no possibility of ever building your life someplace where there are no storms. Um, the only question was how good the foundations would be of your life when the storms came. And uh, because I had built my life very much on you know, these gods I was talking about, um, there was a big crash when the big storms came. And the storms came in a variety of ways, the winds of, of my life at that particular time. I was a senior in high school. My dad lost a race for the United States Congress. Uh, my mom uh, asked him to leave the next day. She would marry his best friend within the year. Um, the beautiful house that we lived in uh, would go up in a fire. Uh, I would come to terms. One of the grandfathers would, would uh, retire and then die suddenly of a heart attack on the golf course. He'd worked all of his life. All of his life finally takes a break. He's gone. Uh, and my other grandfather, uh, underneath the surface of all of the apparent success, is so unhappy that he uh, takes his own life. And so for me, as a kid of 17 years old at this point, uh, 18, um, this just completely devastated me. Uh, I, I was utterly, hopelessly lost. I had been a recreational chemical user as a high school student. I became a chronic chemical abuser. As, uh, as a kid at that point, I was completely self-anesthetizing at every opportunity, in school, out of school. Uh, thank goodness I'd already gotten into a college by the spring of my senior year, or that would have been over. Um, but I was just really, really confused. Um, I had been dating a, um, uh, the year before I'd been dating the captain of the cheerleaders, one of the ho most wholesome kids you could ever know. And uh, I turned and suddenly dated the toughest girl in the school. <laughs> and uh, it was just a symbol, I think, of just how c 
confused I was and how much I was struggling. Um, so that particular summer of my senior year and after high school, um, my dad came to me. He was um, uh, a torchbearer, in a sense, to me at that time. And he came to me and he said, I've blown it in so many ways. I, I, I lost my way. Uh, I got too seduced by my career, um, by my role. I lost your mom. Um, and I, I, have, I have refound my faith. And I want to give that gift to you and to your sister because I feel like I've really let you down by not passing on the most important relationship in life. And he said, I'm, I've arranged to send you to a Christian camp next month. And, and I hope and pray it's going to be an eye-opening experience for you. And I told him there was no chance in H-E double hockey sticks that I was going to some religious fanatic camp. And he played parental hardball. And he said, you're going. You're absolutely going. It's going to be a learning experience one way or the other. You'll find out you're right or you'll find out something else, but you're going. And because he had the keys to the kingdom of college, <laughs> I went. And what happened there was a... Um, is something I don't have, to this day have adequate words to describe. But I, I guess the simplest way of putting it is that I, I heard the story of Jesus for the first time as a young adult. I heard the stories of Jesus' life. I heard the words of Jesus. I saw the way he moved through life and handled people, and I became mesmerized by him. He was just, at this point, a literary character to me, but he was the most fascinating literary character that I had ever read about. And I noticed in the lives of the people that I was meeting at this camp, by the way, it was a Young Life camp down in North Carolina, and I began to notice there was just a quality of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and all of these other things I would one day come to know the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit, the character of Jesus. There was a quality in their life I knew I did not have in my life. Um, and at the end of that week, um, and I'd asked all kinds of skeptical questions, I still have, you know, just, I would, would not have called myself a believer at, that, at this point. But at the end of the week, they did one of those altar calls where they say, hey, if you want to invite Jesus into your heart, um, you can do that. You can begin a new season of your life today. And, and I remember kids going forward and raising their hands, and I remember sitting at the back, unwilling to do it, but I bowed my head when everybody was bowing their head, and I threw up the skeptic's prayer, and I said, God, if there is a God, you know, if this prayer goes anywhere beyond the ceiling... If it's possible to know you the way these people talk about, if, if, if it's possible to have this relationship they describe, if it's possible to have going on inside of my heart what I see going on inside of their heart, I'm open to that. I, take me the next step. And, um, and I left the camp and I went back home to New York State. But something had changed for me. I, my road had turned. I was on a new kind of journey now. And, and I was now committed to finding out who this Jesus really was. 
a couple of weeks later, I landed in, in New Haven, Connecticut. I was a, um, a freshman uh, at Yale uh, University in, in Connecticut. I, I would soon become a political science major. Uh, I um, found Yale to be an environment that was not particularly friendly to faith. And my roommates were a, um, a disaffected Catholic guy, a, a Jewish guy, and an atheist. And I had this um, Bible I had brought with me to, 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 to school, and they jumped on me like coyotes on red meat and mocked me and, and pushed. And, and I had just enough pride in me that I figured I got to get answers. And so I began to go to people who could provide me with answers and help me uh, finally respond to the, all those questions of skeptical questions I had had as a kid. Um, I got involved, as the next slide would suggest, in a whole bunch of different activities in the, uh, in the life of the, of the community. I was uh, uh, on the rowing team. That's a picture uh, taken at uh, the Henley Royal Regatta in, in England, uh, sort of the Wimbledon of, of rowing. I got involved, I became the head of the student government at Yale and served two terms as the uh, leader of that. I was, a, I was a, one of two student representatives on the fundraising arm of the university, the Yale uh, Alumni Fund. But the most important thing that happened for me was that I got uh, involved in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And I found a community of people, a faith, that, that, that again helped me answer the questions, helped me get to know the Bible, that became my great encouragers and supporters, and, I, and my faith really, really grew. I left uh, college four years later. I went, wound up in uh, Belfast, Northern Ireland for two years. And um, it's a long, complicated story with many providences in it. For another day, perhaps, I'll tell you that. But I will say that I, I, I went over there thinking I was just gonna do a year of volunteer service, and I would come back to the U.S., go to law school, get involved in politics. And instead, I got immersed into the life of a local church in a under-resourced community in a war zone. And I, I got invited into being uh, effectively a pastor, into leading Bible studies and preaching sermons and visiting people in the hospital and working with kids in the neighborhood and uh, ministering to senior adults in the, in the community. And, and, and much as I had fallen in love with Jesus when I was 18, I fell in love with the body of Christ, the church, when I was 22. And I thought, how have I been doing my life without this? You know, what a glorious thing to be par part of a community like this, to be doing life together like this. And, and I began to, to feel like maybe my role in life was to help more people experience that to come to know Jesus and to be part of the body uh, as they go through life. Uh, I had been involved in a, um, playing basketball when I was over there. I'd gotten recruited to be on a semi-pro basketball team. They offered me money to play basketball. And, I, and it was just enough money to pay for my first year of theological seminary. And so I went to seminary in Northern Ireland. And... Uh, Eventually came back. I uh, completed my degree program at Princeton Seminary in New Jersey. I, I, I would go on and, and uh, get further training at Columbia Seminary in Atlanta in evangelism. I would go on from there and uh, get a doctorate through Fuller Theological Seminary in California. I'm still very involved there. I chair the board of Fuller Seminary now. Um, they have been a long-term mission partner of Christ Church. Um, 
And then I started serving churches. I, I first wound up at a church in Northern California uh, on the San Francisco Peninsula, and I, it was a Presbyterian church, and I sort of started out as the youth pastor, and then I worked my way through uh, the various chairs and eventually um, met a, a fabulous woman on a blind date. Uh, it was my third blind date that week. I met Amy Ballard, and uh, there were a lot of the, of the ladies of the congregation feeling very sorry for me, like I could probably not meet somebody on my own, and they were setting me up. And uh, one night, um, I met Amy and, and began to fall in love. And um, in 19, on New Year's Eve of 1988, she and I were married uh, at the First Presbyterian Church of Burlingame. Um, after six years in Northern California, I went to San Diego, and I became the senior pastor of a church in a, called the Village Church in Rancho Santa Fe, North County, San Diego. And it's that community where the Heaven's Gate cult thing happened years ago. Some of you will remember, remember that. But I learned what it meant to be the shepherd of a whole flock of people. And uh, while I was there minding my own business, um, uh, a couple that is seated here in this room today came along, Bill and Lynn Sheehan, and and began a conversation with me that would, that would lead to the next major vector change in, in my life. And in the fall of 1996, my wife Amy and I uh, came out to visit Christ Church, uh, began to go deep into a conversation about coming here, and uh, at the end of September of that year, the congregation voted uh, to invite us to come and to join our lives with the people of Christ Church uh, here in, in DuPage County. Um, that has been an amazing experience. I, was, uh, I followed the handsome gentleman in, in blue you see in the photograph. That is me, by the way, in that picture. Um, so I always warn Charlie, enjoy the hair while you have it, buddy, because it could change. Um, and uh, it has been for, for me and for Amy just an incredible honor to serve in this church for so long. What we loved about this church was its amazing character. The thing that touched us most deeply about Christ Church was its heart for the world. And if you've never visited the Oak Brook campus, and you don't need to because you're at the right campus just by being here, but I will tell you that there's a cornerstone to the sanctuary there emblazoned with the words, the call of Jesus to go into all the world. And this was a congregation that so clearly cared, had God's heart for the world. And um, coming from a resort community in San Diego, I thought, that's a bigger vision. And I, and I felt deeply drawn to it and have been so blessed to be alongside this church as it continues to serve the world and God's purposes in it um, over these many, many years. Um, can we go to the next slide? It's been a, a dramatic experience of watching the Lord move over these 25 years, uh, of seeing God take what was a great historic church and regenerationalize it and, 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 and expand its variety of ministries over the years. And, and maybe one of the greatest privileges has been to be around to watch this Christ Church Butterfield uh, come into being. Uh, you know, we've had a couple of names here, as some of you know. But, but the steady, the great steady has been the presence of Jesus in the life of this community and, and the way he moves through, the, through us towards others. And, uh, and I'm, I'm hoping there'll be many more years for me to walk alongside this congregation. What I want to say in closing today is, 
is that um, I really hope and pray, as I've suggested in this uh, last slide, that you and I will build an even stronger relationship with each other. I know some of you, you're meeting me for the first time today. I hope I'm not scaring you away. If I have scared you away, come back. Charlie's wonderful. Um, but if I've just started in a relationship with you, I just want to say how much I look forward to knowing more of your story. And I hope that telling something of my story today would make it easier for you to tell yours. Uh, because yours is every bit as significant and important uh, as, as my story is. God is every bit as passionate about using you as he is about using me. Uh, I, I, I hope you will get some sense from this story that I've shared of why I feel such confidence in God's provision. I've seen him do miracles. Uh, I've, seen, I've seen him move in my marriage, in, in my kids' lives, in the lives of my friends. I've seen him do wonders in the life of the church. Uh, I have learned that if if I'm going through a really difficult time, I just need to wait a while and see how God is going to use it. Uh, that's just an article of faith for me. And as I've said to you, I just believe this is a rare church. I think a rare church is needed today. You know, there are red churches out there. There are blue churches out there. We're a kingdom church. We're a church that tries to, to care about the whole enchilada of what God cares about. And that takes work. That, that takes holding tensions that takes a remarkable character, and it's there in the people of Christ Church, and I so deeply admire it and learn from it all the time. Uh, and we need to be those people, as I mentioned, because this is a world that needs bearers of an enthusiastic hope, with a hope that is not going to get beaten down in the face of the divisions of our time. And so I just want to remind you to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to say thank you as the band comes up today to lead us in our final um, musical selection. I just want to say thank you for being a people who are trying to live that worthy life as passionately as I know so many of you are doing. Would you bow your head with me as the band comes and I'll uh, vacate and let them lead us forward. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your amazing touch upon our lives. Thank you, God, for what you have done um, in, through, around, and so often in spite of me to, to pour out your grace and, to, and to, to lead me and others through me towards that more abundant life that's your hope for everyone. So we give you all the glory today, and we pray that you, Lord, will meet us in this wonderful blessing about which we sing now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.